You know that thing you've always been too scared to go for? It seems like you'll never have the guts. Then a cancer diagnosis. And doing that thing becomes way less scary. I would know. I've always wanted a black belt. And today, the only thing standing in my way is a few wooden boards. It's been a lot of hard work and five years since I beat cancer at Ohio Health. Bring it on. You keep making plans. Visit OhioHealth.com slash keep making plans to learn more. We kick off Totally True Week with a story that you didn't think was based on a true story, but is. And then... We take a look at a story which I have a hard time believing is true because I've never heard of it. The details are stunning, the crime is chilling, and you'll find out more today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rap Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you had a great weekend. This is the start of, I don't remember what I called it. I think it was like True Story Week or Too Good to Be True. I don't remember. (laughs) Anyways, Too Good to Be True actually sounds like a good name. We'll stick with that and see if I remember. I was thinking I want to do five segments on stuff that people don't know is true, but is actually based on a true story. And I found them and I was like, oh my God, I found a couple at least. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, I didn't know this stuff. One of them I knew was based on a true story, but the rest of them I had no idea. So I went and I could only find four. Of course, there's like hundreds of things that are based on a true story. But I was like, I want stuff that people wouldn't assume was based on a true story. So, I mean, like I could have done Titanic or A Few Good Men or whatever. Like Everyone knows Titanic's based on a true story, but... You know, like, I could have done all this stuff, but I was like, come on, like, was Fight Club based on a true story? Like, supposedly Child's Play was based on a true story, but it's really some stupid doll that never really moved. Or, like, slightly moved its head on windy days. Like, that was its superpower. I'm like, oh, that's stupid. Yeah, the writers of Chucky may have been inspired, may have been inspired by Robert the Doll, but come on, it's not based on a true story. But I found some interesting ones. Now, this first one, you may go, eh, but... But I'll admit, it's the least interesting of the four. I, I won't have one on Wednesday because I, I can find a five of them. It's the least interesting of the four, but it's still very, very interesting on its own. Very, very interesting on its own. So take a sip of a little Diet A&W root beer. The year is 1994. I graduated from high school, but I'm not in this story. This story actually takes place in Hawaii. But, you know, I mean, you had grunge music was still rocking hard. The Chronic had just come out, I think, about a year earlier, maybe two years earlier. And in this amazing, exciting time where nothing could ever go wrong. The 90s were great. I don't think they're necessarily better than now. I think I enjoyed, like, the clothes and the... The year... Is 1994. An amazing time to live in. They haven't made any Matrix sequels yet, so you're like excited for what could happen. They haven't even made the Matrix yet, but that doesn't matter. Because movies were really kind of just exploding. You had the you had Pulp Fiction really come out. I remember Pulp Fiction came out when I was in high school. I think it was in 93, 94. Because my brother made me, he didn't make me, but he he had me skip school 
And then he drove me to go see Pulp Fiction at the local theater, and I was blown away. I had never seen anything like it. It really was a phenomenal movie. And it's funny because it basically created an entire new industry of like these independent type. The year is 1994. And in the Hawaii, what is it? Would you just call it the Hawaii Islands? Like, do you say you're in Hawaii? But then there's particular islands. I'm not, you know, I get that. Hawaii's not an actual like island. There's like Maui and then like Honolulu. I think that's a city actually. But anyway, so. In Hawaii, there is a woman named Michelle Philpotts. And what you just experienced with the podcast is what she experiences every single day. Every day, 1994 happens again. She suffered a massive brain injury in 1985 in a motorcycle crash. And then in 1990, she was in a car crash. Only five years later, another severe car crash. And at that point, the doctor started... I'm not going to go back in time, so you guys don't have to be paranoid that the episode is going to reset yet. So, obviously, she's having some serious problems uh, with her brain. Her brain got all bashed up. Now, she doesn't look like Monstro. She can still walk around. She can still interact with people. But there was some severe damage going on inside. By 1994, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. So even though the last accident was in 1990, well, the last severe accident, she could have been carrying like jam bottles down the stairs and be like, oh, and then like fall down. For all I know, she was a life, she was like a real life Goofy. Well, golly, she's like running through plate glass windows. I don't think Goofy did that, but Goofy was an idiot. Now, she could have had a lifetime of bumbling down the stairs and like burglars throwing oil at her feet. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then those type of hijinks continued after her two massive automobile accidents. But what it seems like, besides her being a member of Goof Troop, is the fact that she was suffered this brain damage in 1990, and then it degenerated over time. So by 1994, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. She was having some major uh, brain rot, basically. She ended up not being able to function in society. At one time at her work, she printed the same. She would like be sitting at her desk and she goes, oh, I need to make a photocopy. And she went up and she used the photocopy. She'd go back to her desk. She did that all day long once. She kept having such problems with remembering stuff. They had to fire her from work. And then what it is finally done is that she had, like her doctor's like, listen, you have this major brain damage stuff. He's, she's like, what? He's like, listen, you have your major brain damage stuff. And she's like, goalie, what's the brain? And he's like, Ugh. he has to show like a video. He has to show like a goofy cartoon explaining biology. And she's like, yuck, yuck, now I get it. So, but he's like, you have some major brain damage. And w- what they start to figure out is that her brain basically will reset to the year 1994. And that, because that's really like when it really had a decline. And she's married. So that helps. But she wakes up and he's like, oh, here, I'm, I'm, I'm your husband. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. I'm your husband. Here's a, here's wedding photos and stuff like that. And she leaves post-it notes on the, like this board so she can like wake up and be like, who was I? She has a tattooed on her chest, like grocery list of what she needs to go shopping. She's trying to make the best of it, but she says, sometimes it's not even just when I wake up, it's 1994. Sometimes I'll just forget I'm talking to you right now. Now... That's supposedly, if you guys have seen the movie Fifty First Dates, where Adam Sandler is trying to bang this chick who every day she wakes up and she thinks it's like the 1980s or something like that. It was funny. 
I don't think it was his best film, but it was definitely the the I think the first Adam Sandler you could take your date to. Maybe that was Wedding Singer, but you know, it was just like it was a kind of a charming romantic comedy and da 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 da. I liked it. I only saw it once. It was it, I mean, it was just an okay movie. I know other people love it. But anyway, so that's the true story behind Fifty First Dates. Now the the writers didn't pay her any money for it. They're just basing it on stuff, but so I'm reading, and I was like, "That's interesting." I who would have thought that a movie like Fifty First Dates would actually have a true story behind it? The end. But then I thought, there's some. I read a bunch of articles about this, and I could totally be wrong. But there's some weird stuff that goes on in this story. With this story, now she obviously did. You're you're like great, Jason. Now you're being skeptical about a woman's uh, mental brain damage. Well, hear me out. Hear me out. She's making the photocopy over and over again. And I've read that, that experience was listed in almost every article I read. They're like, she even got fired from her work for making a photocopy of the same page for a day. And I'm thinking, one, have, have the, the a journalist has obviously never worked in an office building because a lot of people are that stupid in an office building. Two, how would you fire an employee who didn't remember they got fired? Like she would have, how long did it take for her to realize she didn't work there? How do you fire someone who doesn't remember they're fired? That that should be an Adam Sandler comedy. But a guy who gets fired from an ad agency, suffers massive brain trauma, and then comes back the next day, and the whole movie is just so sad. It's so sad, because he looks forward to going to work each day, and each day he goes home absolutely crushed. And then, then he wakes up, and he's super happy to go again. But that's not why I'm skeptical of this story. One of the parts said that, in the very matter of factually, they're like, hey, you put post-it notes up around the house so she knows like what to do that day. And let me say this. When I say I'm skeptical, I, I, think, she does, I think she does have brain damage. I think they've sexed it up. I think they've made it a little more sexy. She puts up the post-it notes around her house, and then when she goes out, she keeps a little GPS unit on her so she knows how to get back home. Now... Think about it, and this is why she probably has a really, really bad memory. But I don't think she actually like resets to 1994, because if, again, how unsettling would that be to wake up in bed and with the guy next to you? Now they got married in 1997, but I guess they grew up together. So she'd be like, "Oh my God, it's my best friend. Why are we in bed together? Oh my God, what did I do last night?" I don't want to ruin our friendship. And he's like, whoa, 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 I'm way past the friend zone now. Way past the friend zone. Here's your wedding album. That would be literally the first two or three hours of your day. And then she would go up and she'd be looking at the post-it note. She's like, be like, what Pake satellite cable bill? What? What's satellite? What's cable? What is all this nonsense? She's wearing baggy jeans and a flannel shirt, putting her baseball cap on backwards, getting a skateboard. And the husband's like, no, 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 we don't do that. So, yeah, it just is weird. And then every time she went outside, she'd be like walking around Hawaii. And she's like, good thing I have this GPS so I can find my way home. Oh, my God. What is this amazing piece of technology? It's like as a little picture of me walking down the street. Who's watching me? Who tagged me? And then she would, there would be a post-it note on it, and it would be like, this, don't be afraid of the magical watch you're wearing. It's modern technology in the year 2018. It will protect you. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. I keep forgetting stuff. Then she takes the post-it note off, walking down. Five minutes later, she's like, oh, my God, why is this magical device on my hand? Like, how would you even function outside of a medical facility? 
And the articles are like, well, she, every episode of EastEnders is new. Wait a second, she's not in Hawaii. What happened? She wasn't in Hawaii. Oh, because the movie takes place in Hawaii. She's from England. She is not from Hawaii. People are probably who know the story are like, this guy's an idiot. I'm not going to go back and edit it. I'm not going to go back and fix it because I love that little intro. But anyways, forget Hawaii. Forget Hawaii. She's in England. Jolly old England. Sorry about that. That is actually... I think it's... While I'm mocking... Not mocking. I love it how an episode where I'm talking about forgetfulness, I forget countries and states. Anyway, so that's the story of Michelle Philpotts. That's a very Hawaiian name. Very, very Hawaiian. You can tell she's a local. Michelle Philpotts. The one woman who lost her memory. And inspired... 51st states in a roundabout way but again i think that in real life she just has a crippling mental illness or brain damage and all these journalists go hey that vaguely reminds us of this comedy let's do that that'd be like them taking like a church shooting and being like hey remember that movie wedding crashers i wonder if we can like angle this in sometimes it won't work just because they both involve people going into churches and other people wanting to keep them out you can't really you can't really angle it that way But Michelle, I hope you get better, and I hope you visit Hawaii. I hear it's a beautiful state, but you probably wouldn't remember that it was there. But, again, I wish you the best. I'm not skeptical. I don't think she's faking it. I just think the journalist's take on it, not accurate. So let's go ahead and move on to this other story here. Now, Now, this story is particularly odd because it's one that I've never heard of. And you may go, well, Jason, you're, you're you're not the watcher. You don't know everything, but... There are certain stories that, based on what you read and based on the type of stuff you're into, you should know. You don't necessarily have to know all the details, but you should have an idea of what it is. But yeah, this story really is shocking. Shocking story. And I think the reason why I probably don't know about it is because it's in England. This one actually is in England, and it took place uh, quite a while ago, but still... Quite bizarre. Let's go ahead and get into this. Let's leave Hawaii. Let's leave Hawaii. Hop in the rabbit rowboat. And we're going to row all the way from Hawaii to the town of Osset, which is in Yorkshire, England. Now, if I had done my previous story fine, we probably just crossed the street. I hope you enjoyed the boat ride because this story is creepy and 100% true. Quite odd. Quite odd story. There's a dude named Michael Taylor. He's 31 years old. He's married. He has kids. But he suffered a back injury. He had a pretty bad back injury. And not only was he dealing with the physical pain of it, but he lost his job because of his back injury. So he's sitting at home. He's on the dole. He's not having a good life. He feels like an utter failure. Wife and kids depend on him, and he can't even really move about that much. Just crushed. Literally, because his back is all jacked up. And emotionally... Because he doesn't feel like a man anymore. And a friend of his says, Hey, hey Michael, why don't you come join our prayer group? I think that would be good for you to kind of get out of the house. It would be a good group of people to hang out with. It might be the right thing for you. Now Michael's like, yeah, maybe. But eventually he does go. He does go to this prayer group. And there is this super hot chick. It's run by this super hot chick named Mary Robinson. This 22-year-old girl. She's running this prayer group now it was like an angelican prayer group but it was almost like a little bit of offshoot of the angelican church as well 
And while they're there, Mary Robinson is, they're doing like this, cer- not ceremony, but just like a standard, like, get up and pray, pray to the Lord. Do, 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 do. That's more like the black churches in America. But they're singing, they're dancing, and Mary Robinson starts speaking in tongues. Now, speaking in tongues is not necessarily just blah, 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 blah. It's this weird language that's supposedly like Enochian or the language of angels being spoken by a human, so it sounds weird. Beta bada 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 and he says, yeah, just say, tie my tie, tie my shoes as fast as you can. People think you're speaking and tie my tie, tie my shoes, tie my tie, tie my shoes. Now, some religions are like, I don't really have an opinion on speaking in tongues. It's not something that I have really looked into. I think you could get so wrapped up in the fervor, the, the passion of your God that you just start speaking gibberish. It could be some actual manifestation of some sort of angelic power. I don't know. Never really looked into it. Probably should, because I do a paranormal podcast, but I never really looked into it. But anyways, to get to the story, Mary Robinson, time to tie, time to shoes, time to tie, time to shoes, time to tie, time to shoes. And then Michael, now you're supposed to be quite like devout or have a connection to God to be able to do this. It's not like you're just walking down the street like some hobo. Well, no, hobos would talk like that. It's not like some like atheist should be able to start speaking the, the language of the angels. But Michael is sitting there, and he gets caught up, and he starts speaking in tongues, like, bam. And everyone else is shocked, because they have their spiritual leader in Mary, but now this guy, his very first meeting, begins exhibiting the same powers that she has. People are like, that's really bizarre. Now, people are impressed, and he's like, I don't know where that came from, I just started, like, speaking gibberish. And they're like, oh yeah, you're speaking in tongues, it's the language of the angels, everyone laying hands on him and all that stuff. So he starts actually hanging out with Mary Robinson a lot. She's giving him one-on-one counseling and like trying to lead his spiritual journey. But the wife is now, this is over the course of months at this point, the wife is at home alone. And he's like every night going out to hang out with this super hot chick. And he's like, oh, don't worry, honey. We're just going to go praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And like runs out of the house. And then obviously after that happens, like the 10th, 100th time, She begins to think, and they're having an affair. He comes back. He's all sweaty. His clothes are on backwards. He's like, man, I sure had a good time praising the Lord tonight. Praise the Lord. And then just like (laughs) falls asleep on the couch. He's like, what? Why are you all covered in lipstick? Oh, no, that's the angel's lipstick. Praise the Lord. So anyway, so Christine, though, realizes I got to do something about this. He's cheating on me. Nobody loves Jesus that much. So she goes to the prayer meeting, and Christine walks in. His wife, Christine walks in, and as they're dancing around speaking in tongues, she accuses Mary Robinson and her husband, Michael Taylor, of banging, bumping uglies. And she begins, like, calling out Mary. In the middle of this prayer group, now, everyone else is completely shocked because he wasn't having an affair with her. They realized how devout he was. He really was spending all this time with her. They were praying and talking about spiritual stuff. They They weren't banging each other. But Christine is like, oh, you know, you're banging my man. You're banging my man. Let's go. Let's go. But she's basically like straight up trying to gypsy. She's, she wants to bring her out in the alleyway and beat her up. But while she's yelling at Mary, almost like, you know, those movies where they're like, there's like a baby and there's like two sets of parents and they're like, come to me, baby. I'm the one who really loves you. And like the mean parents are like, no, 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 come to us. We'll give you riches. And the baby's like trying to figure out which team to choose. That was kind of what happened. 
except to replace Baby with Killer Pitbull. Because as Mary is trying to defend herself and say, listen, we're not having an affair, Michael, tell her we're not having an affair, we've never had an affair. Then Michael's turning to Christine, and Christine is saying, I know you're having an affair, that slut, that hussy, she's sleeping with you, and he's like trying to figure out what team to go on. He then turns to Mary and just straight up gets on top of her and starts attacking her. Completely overpowers her. And everyone in this church like totally flips out. And they're trying to pull this grown man off this 22-year-old girl. And they're having a real hard time doing it. And they finally throw him off, kick him and his wife out. Now, he didn't like beat her to death. But it wasn't, he was also, it wasn't heavy petting. Like he roughed this chick up. To the point that he's like, they kicked him out. They said, you're never coming back to this church. So he goes home with his wife. But the next day, him and his wife show back up at the prayer meeting. Because it was like this. And this is where it should start be setting off alarm bells. They're here almost all the time. They show back up to the prayer meeting and they said, I'm sorry. She's sorry for accusing us of having an affair. And I'm sorry for beating you up. Do you forgive us? And the group goes, yeah. We forgive you. Come on in. Let's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, in this area, this little group, they had a... People thought they were a cult. People knew it was connected to, like, major denominations. But this particular group of people were kind of considered a cult. They seemed too religious. That makes sense. Like, they seemed too too into it. Too into it. But what... We'll get to... And that will come up later, but... What happens at this point is that word gets out that Michael had attacked Mary. And she's a little more cautious. I don't think they're having their one-on-one meetings anymore. But so what happens is the vicar of the church gets involved. And he goes, I, based on everything that I know, that he showed up, he started speaking in tongues immediately. He's been super obsessed with God and all this stuff. And his attack of Mary, I think he's possessed. I think he's possessed. So it's fine that you're letting him come back to the meetings, but I think we have to do an exorcism on him. And they go, well, listen, the vicar thinks you're possessed, and we want to do an exorcism on you. He goes, I think that's a good idea. So on October 5th, 1974, two ministers, a Methodist and an Angelican, walk into an exorcism room, and they're like, hey, why the long face? He's all, (laughs) but no, they go into this room with Michael, and they begin performing an exorcism. Seven hours, they're in there. Get out, demons. Get out, demons. And you think, okay, well, you know, that's weird. Like, he just seemed like he kind of had a bad back and stuff like that. And then, like, he attacked some woman because his wife was, like, basically mad at her. What really, like, when you think of exorcisms, you think of, like, people throwing up blood and head spinning around and flying around the room and stupid stuff like that. But anyways, the seven-hour-long exorcism for what this guy was doing was basically just kind of being a layabout and a lout and then attacking a woman. Seven hours to do that. But the priests come out and they go, listen, this dude is chock full of demons. Got a ton of them in him. They actually said he has 40 demons inside of him. So this is going to take a while. And people are like, what? That guy seemed totally normal. You're telling us he has 40 demons inside? Yeah, yeah. We got to get back there. So after seven hours... From October 5th, now we're in the morning of October 6th, they say, okay, we're done. And they're like, all 40 are gone? And they're like, eh, not, not exactly. We're just tired. We're super tired. This is a really exhausting thing to do. So we've gotten the demons out of them. We've gotten 37 of the demons out of them. 
Some of the demons that these ministers said that came out of him was incest, bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, masochism, heresy, and carnal knowledge. So quite, quite, quite a list of sins just flowing around in this dude's body. And they're like, okay, see you later. And, and people, whoa, 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 wait, wait. You said you got 37 of the demons out of them, and you can name some of them. What are the names of the three demons that are still in them? Priest turns around and says, anger, insanity, and murder. Puts on his sunglasses, walks to his car, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I don't care if he is banging bestiality. I don't care if he's lewd. That's fine. Go, come back and get out insanity, anger, and murder. And the priests are like, listen, we're really, really tired. What harm can happen in the next few hours? We're going to start the exorcism again this afternoon. Just, we have to get rest. He needs to get rest. Now you're thinking, okay, Jason, this story is fake. Like, this story is just too good to be true. And if it wasn't for, basically, the police reports that follow and the court documents... You're right. When I was reading the story, I had a really hard time believing that any of this stuff was true. Because I didn't know how it was going to end either. Could just be, and then one day he came home, and it turns out that that was the day he died 20 years ago. And the whole thing was a hallucination of his insane wife. I didn't know where it was going. Two hours after the exorcism, and they left insanity, anger, and murder. Aim! They left aim inside of him. They're like, oh, the priests are at home kicking up on the couch. They're like, we did a pretty good job. Oh, yeah, man. Getting that incest out of him, man, that was quite the honor. They're like, are you sure we shouldn't have gotten the murder out? No, 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 no. He'll be fine. What trouble can someone get into? Two hours after the exorcism, police get a report of a naked man walking down the street covered in red paint. Cop car, woo, woo. What's all this then? They get out with their billy clubs. He, They see the naked man dripping with this red paint, and he's saying... It's the blood of Satan. 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 And while he's saying all this stuff, a neighbor comes out and he goes, uh, I know that guy. And he has a wife and kids. And the cops are like, at this point, they're like, he's not, they could tell it wasn't paint, but they don't know if he's injured himself or somebody else. But when the neighbor said, I know who that is, and that's his house over there, and he has a wife and kids, the cops are like, you stay here, I'm going to go check out his house. Police go to his house. First off, they find his dog. Now, if you have a problem with dog injury stories, you just start fast-forwarding. They walk into uh, Michael's house. Two hours after this exorcism, they find his dog strangled and all four limbs pulled out of the socket. Just furious anger to do something like that. Cop looks at his partner. What the? Oh, my God. Step over it. Put a little evidence tag next to it. The guy's like, I don't think you're going to forget that's there. I don't think you need to put an evidence tag there. Shh, there might be someone else in the house. But you're right. I probably didn't need to put one there. That's going to haunt my dreams forever. They go, and they find Christine in the house. She's dead, with her eyeballs ripped out, her tongue pulled out by hand, and just using his hands, Michael ripped her face off. It's just hanging partially still on her skull. She died from choking on her own blood when her tongue was ripped out. So now, big 
trial. Obviously, he gets arrested. The defense basically says he was the victim of a cult. That this group of people were so wacky that they found this guy who was so mentally damaged that they were going to kind of take advantage of him. Imagine if you were already having some depression issues and then you found a group of friends and they started hanging out with you. And then they said you were mentally ill, but they could fix you by doing removing a curse on you. And then at the end they said, well, we got most of it except for the insanity, anger, and murder part. See you tomorrow. If he was already on the edge, if he already believed these demons were in him, then that could have set him off. And the, he was found not guilty due to insanity, which is a super, super rare way to win a case. It's very, very hard to win not guilty due to insanity. He did two years in one mental institution, did two years in another mental institution, and he was 31 in 1974, so he would be, what would that be, another 40 years since? Yeah, yeah, about that, about 40 years. So he'd be in his 70s now. I couldn't find any proof that he had died since then. We do know in 2005, though, he was rearrested for um, fondling like a teenage girl or a preteen girl or something like that. So then he was brought back into the court system and then he's just kind of disappeared. But I was reading that story and I thought, how, how, one, how come they've never made a movie of this yet? Because it's just so compelling. Two, how have I never come across this in any of my research ever? Because it really is right up that trifecta of things that I look at. It has the paranormal aspects with the demons, it has the conspiracy with the cult angle, and has the true crime with ripping eyeballs. And how do you rip someone's face off with your bare hands? But he did it. And he got away with it. I mean, I've seen photos of the guy. He basically looks like Hank Hill. He's just like a, a schlub. The strength it would take to peel someone's face off with your bare hands is outrageous. Truly outrageous. Jem couldn't even do it. So, when you look at stuff like that, is it possible that this man was actually demonically possessed? I know that they, the court system was like, oh, the church, the bloody church, they set him up to do this and they made him think he was insane and demons and all this stuff. It wasn't his fault. But what I think's creepy about this is that we don't have any evidence that he was violent or angry before he started going to the church. It was when he got there that we see this behavior. And I think that's why people go, he was mentally, probably had some underlying depression, obviously that, but some underlying mental illness issues got hooked up with these bunch of religious nut jobs and then just ran with it. But let's take the paranormal angle. Imagine you are a demon and you're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm totally buff with giant wings now. But imagine you're a demon looking for the perfect targets to take down. Are you really going to find like goth kids and being like, yeah, these kids are so edgy. They're going to summon me and I'm going to make them like buy extra cigarettes. You want to go after something juicier than that. You really want to earn your bones, earn your wings. You could hang out outside cemeteries. You could hang out at punk rock clubs. You can hang out at heroin dens. But what if you just hung outside of a church? Just stood there in the darkness watching everyone who walks by. And you're like, hmm. No, no, I'm good, no, no. And then one day, you see a man coming in, and it's just delicious looking. You can see his pain. You see him walking into the church, and you're like, mm, that's what I want. He's weak. He has a bit of hope. He has a family. I don't necessarily think there were 40 demons in him. And there's like one demon that just sits around and he's like, man, I want to be lewd. I want to be lewd. And he's, 
But I will say that it's possible that this man was demonically possessed. That's within my wheelhouse of beliefs. I think that Michael Taylor was was possessed by a demon. Was he possessed by a demon long before he got to the church? And he was just in waiting, waiting for a trigger? Or was it like my scenario, where the demon was looking for something to not only attack that was starting off its church-going experience, but to actually make the church look bad as well. It never really says, but I doubt this church, I doubt this prayer group met many times, if at all, after this. Mary Robinson's name was in the news. The whole story was out. She was having the affair, but she wasn't having the affair, and all of this stuff gets out. It's so funny because the movie The Exorcist came out around this time. And this was basically a real-life version of that. Didn't have the creepy girl. It didn't have some of the hallmark elements, but it has a poodle getting its legs ripped off and a woman getting her face peeled off by hand. That's some Hellraiser stuff. That's way more intense than Exorcist. Because it's real and it's gross and it's sticky and it's wet. And that is exactly what a demon would want. I said earlier, I don't know if Michael Taylor is still alive. But I can almost guarantee that the demon is. But you have to wonder, is it out there? Is it still out there at some church? It had so much fun last time taking a body for a joyride and experiencing the pleasures of the flesh with the power of dark forces. Is it out there again just looking for someone to take over and then become a forgotten story? But the demon never forgets how much fun it has. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>